0: If you follow our church Instagram page, you may have seen this quote that I shared on there this week from Pete Gregg. He said that after more than 25 years in pastoral ministry, 20 of them teaching on prayer, I've come to the conclusion that most people's biggest problem with prayer is God. We have so many layered images, thoughts, and feelings Onto these words, God and Father, haven't we? And so Peterson begins his translation of Matthew with the introduction to prayer. With "With a God like that loving you, enter into prayer. But sometimes we just need to step back and we need to unpack that word, a God like that. Because what does that mean? And if the Lord's prayer is an invitation into trust and intimacy with God, then one of the first things we need to know is, is what is that picture of God that I have in my mind? To trust someone, to trust God, we need a couple things. One basic thing we need is the knowledge that the person I am trusting has my best interests in mind. That they're not using me or abusing me. I want to know that that love that I'm experiencing is genuine. It's compassionate, it's not self-seeking or rude. It's not keeping a record of wrongs. And so the way that I view God is going to affect everything. And so I want to address two common misconceptions around this language of God and Father before that, that can sometimes distort our view of God and and even derail us before we even begin to pray, pray. Sometimes we just hit our Father and we're done. How do I even pray any more than that? I don't know. And so the first image of God that I would like us... Oh, interesting. The first image of God that some of us carry is sort of like the angry eye of Mordor. It's this eye in the Lord of Rings, it's full of fire, it's watching everything you do, and in this image of God, God is scowling at you. He has a scowl on his face. Perhaps he is always disapproving of you, always disappointed, needing to be appeased and persuaded not to smite you. This image is very prevalent. It is sometimes hard to get away from the eye of Mordor, or the thunder and lightning flinging Zeus God image. Some of our Christian theologies have turned the cross into little more than a divinely sanctioned child abuse. And so we correctly wonder if I can trust God if he has to kill his child to love me. Because that doesn't make sense. And the answer is no, you don't. God didn't have to kill Jesus to love you. We have... Um, God is not located outside of Jesus on the cross, pouring all of his pent-up anger for your sins on him, beating him to death so that he can then turn and love you. God was in Christ, absorbing the violence and the pain and the hurt and the sin of this world upon himself to defeat the powers of the devil, of sin, of death, and of evil. So how we talk about the cross matters because it's going to affect how you view God. So rather, I invite you to remember that, that this prayer that we are praying together when we pray the Lord's Prayer comes in the context of the good and loving God who cares and provides for the sinner and the righteous, who loves them both. And when Jesus talks about his father, he's talking about a father like the one in Luke 15, who watches for his child, who runs and embraces his child, who welcomes him home. That is what the Father is like. The Father who runs and embraces their child and welcomes them. And so, Pete Gregg writes that whenever we approach Him, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, Jesus assures us that God, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator of the cosmos, the Sustainer of the universe, is, drumroll please, on our side the deeper we receive our identity as dearly loved children, the greater our desire will be to spend time with our Father in prayer. Ah, but that quote does bring us to another hurdle to prayer. What about this language of Father and God as Father? What about these masculine images of God? Because so many people have been hurt or abandoned by their fathers. So many have had fathers that have been, to say the least, problematic. In a world where every day it seems that there is a new story of abuse that is done by men, it can be hard to engage in an image of God when all that language is masculine. And for some, the word father brings about good images, time spent learning a skill or, or having adventures or having your dad read you stories. And, and for others, the word father brings... Or for some, the, the word father brings images of security, of protection, of provision. But for others, the image is totally the opposite. And so I want to say this about the masculine language in the Bible. Because it seems every religion talks about God, their gods, in, in one of two ways. So some religions talk about their God in gender in a very physical way. So think about Greek and Roman gods, the Greek mythology. These gods have biology. They are able to procreate. They have physical bodies. Now, their gender is a little more fluid and different than ours. Um, Zeus does give birth to Athena in the myth, which is a little strange. Also through his forehead, but that's... um, Yeah, but still, they have a gender. They have a biology, often... There is a pantheon, a, a multitude of gods that represent both male and female characteristics. They, they made them more relatable to humans. You had a god of masculine virility and femininity, femininity? And, and harvest. And so you would have these gods and they would express gender. They could have physical relationships with each other and also physical relationships with humans. And so you end up with Hercules, which is the product of both god and human. And so these gods were physical. They had male gods and female gods. But then there's another way of thinking about gender and gods, and that's allegory. And this is the way that the Abrahamic faith, the Jews and the Christians, have talked about God. It's an allegorical view of gender. God is seen to be both male and female characteristics. And so, think about how Christians, in opposed to the prevalent Greek worldview in which a God would go and sleep with a young woman and would give birth to a half-God, half-human. Think of how we talk about the, the um, Mary and God and Jesus. But no one believes that God had sex with Mary and so gave birth to Jesus. In some way we talk about the way that the spirit created life within mary but it has nothing to do with physical bodies or the way that we know it rather it is a allegory to speak of god as father to speak of the begotten son god the father is part of the process but not because of the gender of god And so in the Bible, there's a lot of feminine language for God. God is used and described in the Bible as father, king, mother, woman. Both male and female allegories are used to describe God. I'm not going to read all of those scriptures for you, but I just want you to see that there is quite a list of feminine language to use to talk about God. So why do we call, why does Jesus call God Father then? And here I believe we have to understand the cultural worldview of the time. Remember that in the time of Jesus, women were essentially the property of their fathers and then their husbands. They were uneducated. They didn't have much authority. And so to have a female God would be to have a God with very little power, with very little authority. If you want to convey power, authority, provision, you would talk about God as a man. But Christians have never believed that God is a man. Our faith is an allegorical faith. We use this language of father as an allegory, not as a statement about male authority, male supremacy, or male necessity. In fact, I've even heard that in Hebrew, the word Yahweh is half male and half female. So God transcends our human concepts of gender and sexuality. And when we talk about God as father... We're talking about God in allegory. Now, there are some who think that we should just move away from the father language altogether, that it's too problematic. I I remain fairly unconvinced by that idea. I I do believe it's helpful sometimes to talk about God as a parent. Um, One of the translations that I often use, the Common English Bible, sometimes makes that distinction choice and says, like, here's God as a parent who loves their child, and I think that's helpful. I think we should speak of the feminine aspects of God more than we do. It is helpful and good to remember that. But the idea of God as Father, particularly within the biblical context, holds so much meaning that I don't want us to swing the pendulum so far that we lose what this word meant especially what it meant to Jesus. So remember that in the time of Jesus, it was the Father who passed on his name and inheritance to the children. It was the Father's blessing to give to the children for them to carry on to the next. And so the Apostle John writes, for those who did welcome him, Jesus, he, God, authorized them to become God's children, born not from blood nor human desire or passion, but born from God. John is telling us that we are God's children. We belong to the family of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that our identity is God's dearly loved children. That's who we are. This is who we are, the children of God. Not unwanted or neglected or inconvenient children, but dearly loved children. And so Scott McKnight says that those who love God know God as Father. Jesus displays for us His relationship with the Father and longs for us to share in that, because we are family. We're connected. So I really like what N.T. Wright says. Oh, I lost all my notes. They all got into a different order. Oh, lost it. All right, N.T. Wright says this, In a sense, therefore, the first words of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal towards which we are working rather than the starting point from which we set out. Let me say that again. In a sense, therefore, the first words of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal towards which we are working rather than the starting point from which we set out. So maybe you aren't there yet. Maybe... Jesus' invitation to know God intimately, to enter into prayer with boldness and celebration of God's grace and goodness and welcome, to the goal of knowing yourself as the dearly beloved child of God. Maybe you're not there yet, but that's where God would like you to get to. The point where you intimately know God as Father and love God as Father. I love the lines from the song, Good, Good Father, uh, It's this declaration, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. And then it says, and that's who I am, that's who I am, that's who I am. It's the relation of how we know God as the good father, but then also know ourselves as the dearly loved children. Now it's time for my favorite segment, uh, Nathan Destroys Deeply Loved Christian Myths. Maybe you've heard something like this. When Jesus tells the disciples to call God Father, it's a totally new way of coming close to God and a new level of intimacy, and no Jew has ever done that before. The use of the word Abba as Daddy is unique to Jesus. It's beautiful, it's nice, it's not true. Actually, uh, calling God Father Abba is not unique to Jesus. In fact, there is a prayer that says, uh, and a, a Jewish classic Jewish prayer says, our father, our king, is the opening line. The people in the time of Jesus called God Father. Abba is a word that was used more widely than just on the lips of children calling their dad, Daddy. Not that that isn't part of what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer and to call God Father. Certainly it is. And it's a good understanding of God and God's invitation to be known as part of his family, as dearly loved children. That's part of what it means. But I think we should also ask the question then, what did it mean for Jesus to call God Father? When Jesus calls God Father, he has at least two attributes of God in mind. The intimate love of his children, but also his sovereign saving power. When Jesus calls God Father, he's talking about both character and vocation. The job of God. Because when Jesus calls God Father, he is calling to mind the story of Exodus. The story of salvation. And so, the first time we read about God as Father, we talked about not that long ago in Exodus 4, to 23 Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. When Israel calls God Father, they are holding out the hope of deliverance. Slaves are to become sons and daughters. And so N.T. Wright says that when Jesus tells us to call God Father, those with ears to hear we'll know that Jesus wants us to be ready for the new exodus. That we are going to be free. And so Wright says, the first word of the Lord's Prayer, therefore in Greek or Aramaic, it's actually Father, not our Father. Just the first word is Father. Contains not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. When we call God Father, we are speaking revolution. We are speaking hope. In a world in which hope can slip away, our security can turn to ash. To pray our Father is to speak hope where there is no hope. It is to spark revolution, to stand against the chaos of the world, and to speak deliverance to the slaves who can become free. And so Karl Barth, the German theologian, once said, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To pray our Father is to declare the hope of revolution, the hope of deliverance, the hope of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. To pray our Father is not only a new depth of spirituality or spiritual renewing, rather those who come to rest on God's good news of hope, about being delivered from evil, returning from exile, having enough bread again. It is about God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And all of that is contained in that word, Father. It is used in this prayer. When we pray, Our Father, we are speaking hope, deliverance. We begin to be active in this world to bring about God's kingdom. Another way that I think Jesus was using the word Father in this ancient Near Eastern context is also very instructive for us today. Because unlike today, when a son was born, there weren't a lot of um, career options available to you. You basically just did what most of human history has done. You did what your father did before you. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your father was a farmer or a fisherman, you became a farmer or a fisherman. I remember Peter telling us the story about when his dad asked him, Peter, what do you want to be? And his dad, Peter said, I want to be a farmer. Because dad was a farmer. His dad said, don't be a farmer. Be a doctor or a missionary. So Peter did both. I love that story, Peter. One of my adolescent dreams was to become a farmer, actually. I loved the big machines, the dust, the being in the fields. I really wanted to be a farmer. My goal, uh, realizing that I actually don't know how to farm, though, became a bit of an impediment. And so for a while, I thought I would marry a farmer's daughter and I could get into the farming world that way. Um, but that never worked out. There's something about growing up on a farm, though. And you see this on the farms where the kids walk along with Dad and they learn how to feed the pigs. They learn how to fix the machines. They learn how to clean out the bins. And as a child is growing up on a farm, they slowly absorb the way of the farm as they watch their father teach them and apprentice them how to farm. It's very difficult for a 20-something, just out of high school person to start farming because you weren't apprenticed all your life in the way of farming by your father. Jesus learned to be a carpenter by watching his father be a carpenter. He apprenticed under his father. In this ancient Jewish Near Eastern context, to call God father was to learn from the father the way of the father's business. And so when Jesus calls God father, we learn too that father is not only comfortable, intimate, but it contains a challenge. It contains a way of becoming an apprentice to God. And so N.T. Wright says, that is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he called God Father once again. What we see in Gethsemane is the apprentice son checking back one more time to see how the Father is doing it. And what is the project that the Father and Son are engaged upon? Nothing less than the new exodus the rescuing of Israel and the whole world from evil, injustice, and sin. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the cross is not something that God makes Jesus do. God does not abandon Jesus nor turn His face away God is most definitely not inflicting the cross upon His beloved Son. God's wrath is not being poured out on Jesus for our sins as though Jesus was some whipping boy. I don't believe that those articulations of the cross are helpful. They don't do justice to the Trinity, to the loving God, the Father. Rather, together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are engaged in a cosmic act of love and cosmic deliverance absorbing the sin and death of evil upon the God-Self. Together, Father and Son are engaged in a final act of deliverance, the start of the new Exodus, and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane looks to see how together they will bring about the victory as they go on. And I think that this is perhaps one of the most missed aspects of this opening to the Lord's Prayer, this apprenticeship to the way of Jesus. Father, how are we going to do this? Jesus says in one of the Gospels, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. I only do what I see the Father doing. It's an apprentice following the way of the Father, which is very different than what we think. In John 12, 28, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. In a world of celebrity and power, we can think that glorify means make amazing, make me incredible. We look at celebrities who glorify and get glorified by people. But Jesus redefines glory so that it includes loss, rejection, and death. Eugene Peterson writes, We pray in the company of Jesus in order to learn this, to relearn the meaning of a word that has been corrupted by our culture and debased by our sin." Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up to the meaning of the word. We look up glory, and what do we find? Obscurity, rejection, a sacrificial life, an obedient death. And through and in and around all that, the bright presence of God backlights what the world despises and ignores, and what we so often despise and ignore to call God father is to redefine our definitions of glory and success. And he writes says saying our father isn't just boldness and sheer cheek of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, "Hi dad." It is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying, "Please, may I too be considered an apprentice?" Of the son, an apprentice son. It means signing on to the kingdom of God. To call God Father is the boldness, the sheer risk of saying quietly, please, may I too be considered an apprentice, son, and daughter. So may we be people who know God intimately as our good Father. May we be people who pray to our Father in the hope and expectation of God's salvation and revolutionary new world. May we pray to our Father in expectant faith that we too can apprentice under His love and so serve and bring healing to the world as Jesus did, bringing glory to the Father.